Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman, joined as always by Mr. Will Rotondi. Hey, hey. And May Finch, of course. Hey, guys. On this week's episode, we are going to be talking about Bonnie and Clyde. This was a you've never seen uh, prompt, which I'm just going to say like that. Uh, say like that forever I think lean into um, it Chris exactly uh, this was my selection and I have now removed one from the pile of shame uh, we will also uh, be doing a side quest but first we thought we'd catch up on what we've been watching so uh, take it away I, you know I'm going to work my way from bottom to top on my screen so May uh, hit us first what have you been watching yeah so I actually had a movie night last night and um, the fun thing about doing movie nights with friends is that you end up watching stuff you never would have picked. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think this was a straight to streaming movie that came out like during the pandemic called Love and Monsters. And uh, I'd never even heard of it. And I was like, okay, this seems cheesy, but I'll try it. It's basically an apocalypse film where the, the premise is just ridiculous. It's self-aware that it's ridiculous, thankfully. But the idea is that there's an asteroid coming to Earth. That doesn't cause the apocalypse. Everyone blows it up with rockets. But there's something in the rockets that causes all of the cold-blooded animals on Earth to mutate into monsters. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. <laughs> and they Go just on. wipe out most of the people on Earth. And so, like, several years later, everyone that is left alive is, like, living in these, like, little colony bunkers, and it's really risky to, like, go onto the surface to try to go to another bunker, but the protagonist is this, like, 20-something dude that really wants to go find his old girlfriend from the before times, and is, like, he's the kind of a guy that always rolls a one, essentially, when he's trying to do stuff. Uh, so <laughs> an r group, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's comical watching him like try to survive on the surface. And it ended up actually being a very sweet film. It defied a lot of the like apocalypse and rom-com tropes that I was expecting it to fall into. And I would give it a solid like B plus A minus, which is higher than I was expecting. So if you uh, yeah. don't have anything else to watch on a Friday or Saturday night, uh, check out Love and Monsters. Where do you know where it's uh, streaming? Do you rec recollect? I think it's Netflix. I know they all run together, like honestly, but it's just I was curious. Um, we'll come back to that's it's Prime, Amazon Prime, and Paramount. Nice. All right. Uh, Love and Monsters. Love and Monsters. You see, I've already forgot Love and Monsters. Okay, got it. <laughs> With uh, Dylan O'Brien and Jessica Henwick. Amazing. All right. Uh, Will, how about you? What have you been watching? Uh, a little bit of everything, man. Uh, so after our talk last week about The Dark Knight and you talking so much about how much you enjoyed the latest incarnation of Batman, uh, I went and watched The Batman on HBO Max and then proceeded to check off other items on my HBO Max queue, which included Raised by Wolves, at least an episode or two of that. And then my wife, who really was interested in checking out an anime they've got on there called Bell, which was kind of cool. So we watched that or, um, earlier today. So that's it's that's probably it. I feel like there's probably one more in there. Oh, and uh, <laughs> 
on the subject of heist movies for later today as a tie-in there is a movie uh by michael bay called ambulance that is also on i want to say peacock that is ridiculous and so that was that was my uh it was like the movie choice that you go and you watch just because you have no expectation and you just want to see a bunch of shit blow up. And that was pretty much uh, it stuck the landing on that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael Bay films. If you don't know what you're in for by now, then uh, I don't know <laughs> what to tell you. You've got plenty. You've got decades literally of uh, of prior works to, to kind of draw off of. But yes, yeah, it can be fun um, for sure. I heard that one was a bit more of a return to form for him where like like it had a, a a little more substance than some of like maybe his like more recent like transformer movies and stuff like that so not a high bar to clear from what i understand but um it's nice <laughs> to see that he's like still doing his thing you know it's true people keep giving him money so he's gonna keep making stuff blow up i feel like the last thing he did was like something for netflix before that which may have also been kind of a heisty movie because it was like ryan reynolds and ah I'd have to look that one up again. But yeah, so he uh, every once in a while, there'll be something that'll come out. And it's pretty par for the course, like you mentioned. It's got a bunch of various or uh, eh, stereotyped characters and, you know, not very deep, but not really what you're probably looking for if you watch a Michael Bay movie. So that's, eh. you know what you're getting into. Yeah, exactly. You're just hoping that everybody makes it out okay that you care about, which may or may not happen. But then this one, it was surprising that it, it did turn out okay. It's one of those things, too, where you watch it and you could, if you really wanted to, nitpick about a lot of stuff. Like, why is this even still a plot? But that, again, like, if, you, if you've seen a Michael Bay movie, <laughs> you know that that doesn't matter and you just have to roll with it. So, yeah, 100%. Uh yeah, you made some good, really good, like, I think movies back in the 90s, especially like the the rock, like that era of like Michael Bay films <laughs> seem to have a little bit more heart. Um, it could have been the like casting choices too. like, uh, although he's had some some heavy hitters and some of his stuff. But I'm glad to hear it was uh, it was enjoyable, man. That's all it really counts. As long as you had a good time, you didn't regret watching it. Like, it's always worth worth it, at least like, you know, a little bit. So, yep. Very cool. What uh really quick, what did you think of the Batman? Couple sentences like uh review. No, you don't have to go super deep in if you don't want to, but just, just curious. I really enjoyed it. Um I will say that I thought it was it felt like it was a little long in a couple of parts, but overall I thought the pacing was great. Um I really enjoyed this is gonna sound kind of generic, but it was very dark both in tone and just visually dark. Like everything was just in very dark hue or um obscured. And I liked that. I liked watching a, a darker Batman version that wasn't in like Zack Snyder's sort of Justice League universe. And I was pleasantly surprised by Robert Pattinson as a young Bruce Wayne. And I really liked Colin Farrell as the penguin. That was, I mean, just Steals in the like, show, man. He's so I great. know just his, just the way that he played the character and the prosthetics and the look, like if you didn't know that was Colin Farrell, you might not guess that that was him. So that was cool. And I really liked Zoe Kravitz, right? As Catwoman. Cause I really liked her too. In that role. That was great. So yeah, overall, definitely recommend it. Um, I will say it's a little long, too, which, depending on how you are with the length of a movie, depending on time, and if you want to watch it all in one go, then that's just something to keep in mind. But overall, no, definitely recommend. It's my favorite introduction to Batman, too. 
Mm. Um, like like the first scene that like where you actually like see him um the way that that's like structured is like i thought was so interesting and and neat because you well i I actually won't say it because they haven't seen it yet so i'll I'll leave it up but i just i think that's my favorite like uh introduction to batman in any of those like series like for sure how they go about it's very cool Mm -hmm. well i haven't seen too many like new films uh i am like I, I just by accident i started i realized i'd watched like two quentin tarantino movies like um like in reverse order from newest to oldest and now i've just decided that's going to be a thing that i just do because it's very tarantino to to do that so i'm slowly working my way back through um inglorious bastards is up next we have been watching a lot of tv um we are about halfway through the bear which is uh incredible really really like it uh it's a nice um i don't know a little palate cleanser from a lot of the stuff that i feel like i've seen this this year that um has been sort of like you know really really uh gigantic in scope family dramas like uh succession or like something real cerebral like severance this has a lot of uh interesting things to say about like family dynamics but it's just a, it's a it unfolds in a very unique way and i love the kind of frantic pace that'll like go to a really quiet slow moment and then a frantic pace like it, it's just it's nice it's it feels almost like um sitting in like a like a jazz concert in a way where um whoever i, I don't know like off the top of my head um the name of the show creator um showrunner but they know what they're doing um it's just it's uh, it's a masterful thing and it's been brilliant to watch um I've heard it's then, like an unusually realistic depiction of like back of house dynamics at a restaurant. Yes. Uh, I having worked in a couple of restaurants, I can say that is very much uh, accurate. Like everything from like the lingo to like, again, like how people kind of, um, you know, talk to each other. Some of it's a little bitchy. Um, and, but at the end of the day, like, you know, a good restaurant, like that's all kind of in good fun, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And it's just the nature of like what that, environment feels like but uh yeah it also has some like really really deep um narrative uh uh, meat that i wasn't expecting and i don't want to like say i think it's one of those ones it's just you just like fire it up and watch it and you'll see what i mean but um there's there's some some quite heavy things uh in there um but i i love it has has that uh sorkinese kind of like dialogue that's very zippy (laughs) <laughs> where even though it's a half hour show like like it, it has you know probably like twice as much dialogue on the page as like many of the shows that would be like kind of in that ilk so uh, highly recommend it uh, our bedtime show kind of just to round things out has been uh, curb your enthusiasm we've I, i've not seen all of that before i've only seen like just bits and pieces so uh, that's been kind of a nice way to unwind at night is to watch larry david fumble his way through uh everyday life and get uh in trouble with it seems like everybody on the planet earth for the stupidest of shit so nice. there you have it yeah um all right well let's let's draw us a uh, a side quest see what we have on the menu today to uh continue with the some of the bear um terminology and it is a dreamcast so this is where we will attempt to recast um somebody from a well-known film and with a with a different actor and kind of discuss that so this might be one we have to cut around because it does take a little bit of pondering um most of us probably don't walk around with a lot of these in our back pocket you know so 
I feel um, like you do, Chris. Not for something like this. I don't know. <laughs> I will be honest. Like, I uh, I do not. I have a ridiculous one. If you can't think of one, please no. Go by for it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hear me out. Technically, I would like to replace Jared Leto in everything that he's been in, but (laughs) (laughs) specifically, I think Morbius could have been saved if David Tennant played him because one, David Tennant can pull off basically anything and he's done like a really good job playing a villain in, um, there was like a Marvel series he was in that he really nailed it. Jessica Um, Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Jessica Jones. Uh, Two, uh, Matt Smith is also in Morbius and they've both played the doctor. And mm. like, can you just imagine like the nerd freak out from having them both in the same film? Like that alone would drive box office sales. Yeah. So I, I think David Tennant could like, like going back to all of like, if I'm looking at every Jared Leto role, like a David Tennant Joker, like, sure, I could definitely be on board for that. Like, because he yeah. played Joker in the Suicide Squad movie and a couple others. Um. David Tennant getting an axe in the face, uh, courtesy of Christian Bale. Sure. Like, uh, I could, you know, in American <laughs> no, that, Psycho. That one can stay. I'm fine with Jared Leto doing that. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> That's the one exception. <laughs> it's the only role that he ever took on and never got working again, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love David Tennant. And he's just like, like, uh, I feel like anyone who like went through like the traditional Shakespearean, like kind of acting, um, it's just very good and very flexible with what they're able to do because I did some stuff with the Shakespearean theater in college and like it's really hard to work with that material sometimes and you really have to understand it and be nuanced in how you're saying things for it to like come across well to a modern audience and yeah it, it shows with people like David Tennant, uh, Sir Patrick Stewart's another person who went through that um, kind of training. Um, so yeah, I think I think if anyone could save Morbius, it would be David Tennant. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to agree. I, I haven't seen it, but um, I love that the studio completely misunderstood the memification of that movie and thought that oh, people want this to come back to theaters, and then it bombed like a second time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think like that could have been a more interesting movie from what little I know about it. Um, he's my favorite Doctor. Like that was the. Um, and when Eccleston, you know, like went away, like as I was watching, because I was way late to the party, I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. But uh. and then with David Tennant, I was like, no, it's not time. It's not your time. No, I know. <laughs> please. Um, <laughs> he was by far my favorite. Yeah, I would have to agree. I like his quirky sense of uh, presence in most of the roles that he has. And I didn't watch Jessica Jones, but I did know that he was in that. So that's excellent to hear that he can also play a very creepy, manipulative bad guy. Um, but yeah, I feel bad for <laughs> I feel bad for Jared Leto. Like he he tries really hard, man, but he's kind of weird too. I think the Joker thing, like all the the like method acting and the Sending like, like dead animals to people. Yeah, when it gets to be Condoms like you start weirding out your coworkers by doing stuff and all the like the weird negative publicity that came out about that. It's just like, I mean, I, I appreciate like what he tries to do in film, like when uh Blade Runner 2049, I thought, you know, he he does have the acting chops, but it's like there's certain things where he just takes it a little bit too far and so that to me was like yeah that's too bad and 
I don't, I don't know what it was setting Morbius up for such like I guess a catastrophic failure from what it sounds like because I didn't watch it either I just heard it about it and then of course the memes and everything you guys are talking about but I uh I, I just felt bad for that like he seemed like he was pretty excited for that too so I guess it's just just one of those things but hopefully he can turn it around maybe maybe just pull back a little bit on the change the acting up a little bit you know the method for it but uh yeah he, just, he also he literally runs a cult like it, as a person Jared oh, Leto oh, is not yeah. someone I'd ever want to encounter <laughs> wow yeah, Duly I did noted. not know that I had no yeah. idea yeah yeah he's he's uh, a piece of work but I mean Morbius had a lot of issues like the script writing is kind of ridiculous uh there's mm. continuity errors throughout the film the editing is also kind of strange um like I mean Marvel movies will do this too sometimes but there's just like all these like special effects layered over all of the action scenes that makes it actually hard to appreciate any of the action and lots of stuff mm. but I I think it could be like significantly salvaged just with some recasting <laughs> you know I take it back there is one role of his that I really liked and I thought he nailed it and and did an amazing job and that uh, Dallas Buyers Club um mm. that was a really really um I felt like he earned all the accolades like I haven't seen um, that one you know it's uh it's not not the happiest of movie you know it deals with like the uh the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and like um but it's it's he's great in it um yeah plays um somebody who's like transitioning i think and be friends of all the unlikely people matthew mcconaughey who's this macho guy who's laboring under the uh false assumption that you can only get hiv um you know if you're part of the gay community and then gets hiv and then like it's like well ostracized by all his guy buddies and he's sort of having to wrangle with this and figuring out a way to like seek treatment because he's given a very short time to live and they they become friends and they have such a nice dynamic and hmm. it's uh there's some really really good scenes like so that's that's the one case I'll, I'll make an exception for jared leto but i think you're right for the most part i'm not a, a wild fan of his uh films or his music so. <laughs> oh don't get me started on the band <laughs> yo yo hold up my dude you said jared leto's got a band all right 30 seconds to mars yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh did not realize wow i don't know where i've been the last 10 years <laughs> uh it's longer than that i think yeah. well like so our friend uh michelle that was at clemson if you remember her was in some film classes with us in english classes mm -hmm. like she was big into 30 seconds to mars but yeah i digress wow okay so where have i been the last 20 to 25 years basically <laughs> okay <laughs> been around a while well good good choice i support your recasting <laughs> yeah also i don't want to get accused of like libel or anything it's not officially a cult but he has a fan club and retreats that have culty vibes culty vibes okay <laughs> yeah yeah yep, yep. okay well, well yeah we'll, we'll we'll redact that and say <laughs> it's a cult like <laughs> fan club there we go maybe it's a religion you know maybe he'll pull the the l ron hubbard route and write a book and then we'll we'll go from there amazing well then we'll get uh the jared leto version of battlefield earth <laughs> no we can definitely <laughs> skip that <laughs> oh man oh, gosh. <laughs>
Well, with that said, let's transition to uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which was our pick for our main quest for the week. As always, we're going to start off with some general impressions, and then uh, we're going to do a very quick crash course on what New Hollywood uh, is. So like the time period that it encapsulates the major films and then like the stylistic uh, characteristics that make up uh, that era of film and talk about like how that maybe pops up uh, in Bonnie and Clyde, which is widely considered to be the first big example of uh, this era. And then uh, we'll round it out by having a little discussion about uh, heist tropes and what some of our favorites are, what's overdone, and just have a, a nice little uh, chat about all of that good stuff. Love me a good heist movie. So uh, good times. Will, I'm going to start with you first. Uh, what did you make of Bonnie and Clyde? I think overall I liked it. Um, I think that certain things about it sort of make me chuckle just because it seems so dramatic in the way that some of the characters react to events around them or how they behave. Like there were a couple of times where I honestly thought, is this really how the 1960s Hollywood thought that the 1930s, like people in the 30s would talk? Or is this just the style at the time for the dialogue? And so that, that to me was sort of entertaining. I think it's interesting. The film itself tries to be funny at moments and then gets really serious and dark at other times. And I think the blood more than anything else for that time frame was surprising to me just because you see so many films that just don't do that. You'll have people that get shot and they'll kind of like keel over. But this was surprising to me to see that much blood in a film for when this movie came out. So that was that was interesting, too. Uh, that's probably the most that stuck out to me initially. Uh, May, how about you? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree on the blood and also like just how quickly it would go from like really serious issues around like death and intimacy to just like, you know, cracking jokes. And uh, it, it also seemed kind of radical in the dark sense of humor, especially from like, you know, Bonnie. Uh, and I feel like she's not the kind of woman that was usually depicted on screen. So that's interesting. I, I thought they would try to make her more likable, frankly. And I kind of like that they didn't. Like, I, <laughs> you find it very hard to uh, sympathize with her, um, except except for when Blanche is screaming, because I would also get annoyed. <laughs> may or may not have said, why couldn't you get shot in the throat? <laughs> like, night when I was watching it, but we'll get there. Oh. We'll <laughs> Oh, and I didn't, I had no idea Gene Wilder was in it and he came on the screen oh, and I freaked out. <laughs> yeah, dude. I saw him in the credits when the movie started and I was like, oh, I had no idea. Yo. And then I kept wondering when he was going to show up. And then I was really worried something was going to happen to him. Like, like, don't, please don't kill him. Don't kill yeah. Willy Wonka. It's I know. His first, first screen appearance and that character I did read is a little fun bit of trivia um, that's like based on a real anecdote and the undertaker that uh, it was really technically a coroner. I think that they picked up ended up being one of the ones that actually did like work on their bodies when they were hauled in after the big shootout at the end. So oh, wow. weird chilling bit of foreshadowing and like a coincidence, but yep. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail. <laughs> oh no, that was, that was basically it for my uh, first impression. What about you? Yeah. Since this was your uh, pick, man, I I just I love this era of uh, filmmaking so much. Um, like this, uh, I I can't believe that out of all the films that kind of 
slip through the cracks like this is one of them because it, this just it is my favorite era of, of i think it's the, the best 20 years of hollywood that there is like period in existence the concentration of just really exciting films and um i i loved this movie in particular because like i i could close my eyes and imagine like being in a movie theater and seeing something like this for the first time being like in the baby boomer generation especially and being like holy shit like this must have been so exciting um you know as as you have already pointed out um it's it's very violent from you know tr what traditionally would have been seen the ways that they ex explore um sexuality like felt very grown up um in a lot of ways and interesting the technicolor is just one of my favorite like holdovers it's so fake and it gives films this weird dreamlike quality so i love that this was in technicolor and um yeah i just i had a great time with it i think it's not without its uh its flaws but like if you kind of take it in context of like when it came out um i think it's it's a really really incredible film and i see why it's lauded you know as being like one of the most important films in you know modern cinema for sure a lot of ways it kicked off modern cinema so as someone yeah. who says i was also like really impressed with the costuming you the, the best example is behind will but i loved that little outfit that bonnie had with the little beret and the scarf and mm. <laughs> yeah no absolutely um i i feel like i also uh the last thing i'll add was i was a little um less shocked because like i'd heard so much about the ending of this film and as we'll talk about in a second, like uh, the sudden ending with no denouement is like very much a characteristic of this period of Hollywood. So I, I kind of wish I didn't know <laughs> that, mm -hmm. like how, it, you know, everything kind of went down. But um, that's like really my only regret because it didn't have the impact I think it might have like um, for somebody that either wasn't familiar or like was seeing this like when it, you know, was a contemporary film. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, New Hollywood cinema. So the time period, um, and again, like like all things in the world of academia, there's a bunch of debate over some of the like very specifics, but uh, widely considered to be an era that spanned from the mid-60s to the early 80s. Um, so technically there are films that are part of New Hollywood before this one, but this is, as I've said, like kind of considered to be the first big one uh this an easy rider really paved the way for a lot of what you saw um you know after the graduates another big example from this time period um characteristics of uh this period of, of hollywood for these films uh typically anti-establishment um typically narratives that um are non-traditional so um, not having a, a clear like first, second and third acts where you have the rising action, climax, falling action, like a lot of that stuff is really disrupted by things like the picnic scene in this, for example, which was one of my favorite parts of the, mm -hmm. the movie. I love the dream, what like ethereal quality. Like I thought maybe it was a dream sequence for a while, but Me again, too. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there. So stuff like that is very uh, characteristic. Um, also, uh, you know, you have sort of the birth of like the anti-hero in a lot of these films where they blur the lines of like morality um, for characters, having um, likable protagonists like Bonnie and Clyde, for example, um, who are, 
little morally uh, gray or, or maybe even just like, you know, uh, would, would have been considered villains uh, prior to that. Oh, yes, uh, we already kind of touched on it. So the the swift kind of uh, resolution of the film kind of leaving a impact on the audience without much like uh, of any like kind of like tying up the loose ends, denouement, like all that stuff's kind of thrown out the window a lot of the time. So you're kind of just boom, the credits roll. Um, we have at least one other film on our list, uh, our, our film selections that does this. That's uh, it's quite shocking that I love. So uh, that those are the characteristics. Um, I don't know that I would consider um, like Return of the Jedi to be like, but that's like the last year that I saw like kind of like like in that area. And I think it's just like kind of shoehorned because it's George Lucas. But that and, you know, like some of those early 80s movies are kind of the last ones that are part of this era. And you can um, kind of see some cynicism. Like if you go and, and read about this era of Hollywood where, uh, it went from being anti-establishment to like marketed anti-establishment. Like like the Hollywood got on board very quickly with mm. these films because they were putting asses in the seats, like nothing that Hollywood was putting out up to this point. So um, Dr. Doolittle uh, is a famous example. The Rex Harrison film uh, flopped on its ass hardcore. They were trying to recapture some of that like old Hollywood magic, that purity, and people just weren't going out to see that. And you have stuff like this and and it you know um this is like pre the blockbuster era which really started with like jaws uh, but people were showing up in droves to see these movies that were um kind of somewhere between uh like a artsy uh, international picture and like uh traditional hollywood so you had bankable stars you had recognizable names at least like in the films like for the actors a lot of the time with usually um unknown directors kind of telling these really um, interesting stories so all of that being said and knowing what some of the elements are what are some of the things that you guys enjoyed about bonnie and clyde and did you notice some of those tropes kind of popping up in 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 the film here i mean you did mention the dream sequence already um yeah. or the the picnic dreamlike sequence i suppose <laughs> yeah. and uh yeah that that was very interesting i definitely i liked that the arc of action was not predictable and it kept me on my toes more and made me pay more attention because uh, I wasn't sure if the next scene was going to be, you know, like a, a quiet moment between Bonnie and Clyde, uh, more kind of like infighting with the whole group or something completely out of left field or another heist. And that was that was interesting. I think that's probably part of like the big appeal of the movie for that time period. And I also think that in terms of like how everyone is depicted, it's there's there's no one who is purely good or bad, and everyone seems to be multidimensional, even the supporting characters. Like we we have Blanche, who could just be this annoying kind of crybaby <laughs> in the group, right? Uh, but she does get at least a little bit of background as you know. You find out she's a preacher's daughter, grew up in the church, and is probably feeling a lot of internal conflict over all of this. Um, and yeah, it's just cool a smidge. to get that. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> internal, semi-external conflict. <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, interesting to see that with characters from this time period, especially since uh, a lot of early films do kind of try to tell a moral tale and this is more just like nope these are people they make good decisions and bad decisions and this is their story 
I definitely feel like the idea of um, like bucking the law, basically trying to take what you feel you're you are owed and finding your own success, I guess, especially because this was the depression. And so people were feeling very um, hopeless in terms of what they had the ability to do and survive. And you see that a lot with like the um, the the farmer whose house, I guess everything was foreclosed to the bank and how uh, Clyde is is shown to empathize with him and to want to do right by him. At first, it was like when Clyde made the comment, just kind of like the offhand comment, like, oh, yeah, we rob banks. Like, I always thought, like, are you trying to make this this farmer feel better? Or <laughs> did you you did you like feel inwardly that you wanted to do good by him? Or you just thought, you know what, this is an opportunity, you know, and um, and it's it's interesting to see. I guess it's it, it's one of those things like in a lot of heist movies, we want to root for them to succeed, you know, even though they are breaking the law and then sometimes murdering people, as is the case in this film. You know, there's a lot of heist movies where it's sort of like they get a pass if they're nice people <laughs> like Ocean's Eleven, where it's like, well, you didn't really murder anybody. And we like all of you and we think you all look really nice in the clothing that you've got. And, you you know, you're personable and you work well together as a team. So, yeah, you know, like we hope you pull it off and stick it to that, you know, smug casino boss and all of his, you know, smarminess. But at other times it's, you know, you have to sort of temper that with the fact that, you know, they are breaking the law or they are committing other crimes along the way and sort of what is the punishment going to be for that? Are they going to get away with it or not? Are they going to, are they going to eventually get their comeuppance at some point? And I feel like in some case, I mean, like you, I, I'm trying to think if there's been any film where it sort of was left open-ended. I feel like the original Italian job is sort of open-ended in that respect where you're not really sure if they're going to get away with it or not, or if the vehicle is going to fall off the side of the cliff. Spoiler, if anybody has not seen that film, that that ends on that. <laughs> so maybe put a little tagline in front of that, but um, it's, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably what stood out to me the most was you, you are made to want to empathize with them, but at the same time, you know that something is going to happen because of what they're doing even in uh like a more like modern like example of like a heat um i wouldn't mm -hmm. say that the nero character is particularly nice in that but he's interesting so mm -hmm. there is that sort of tension between i kind of want to see you pull this off but at the same time um you know i i I, I'm okay if it if you don't like you know I, I it could go either way and you do feel a little bit of that tension and you have the Pacino character who's a cop like who <laughs> isn't also particularly nice either so you're like well I, I I could see you getting outsmarted and I'd be fine with that but also if you catch De Niro like that is uh, just as interesting to me so I, yeah I love that kind of ambiguity and I think with Bonnie and Clyde um, they're they're charming. Um, they have charisma, but yes, like they do murder people on screen, you know, and um, it can be, I think quite, it was shocking to me, like when um, there was like the first big shootout where it's like, oh, okay, like they're not trying to like maim, they're not trying to just get away, like they are absolutely like, you know, anybody that's going to impede their progress, like they're going to to kill them, especially after that first death with the guy that gets shot mm -hmm. through the window.
in the um, face like, <laughs> in the face yeah um so yeah that's it's it's a little hard to, to reconcile sometimes and i think um to your point well it, it does uh it makes it a little more interesting they're also like they just they they seem very childish in a lot of ways they love to toy mm. with people like when they first come up to gene wilder's character they're just you know messing with him essentially making faces yeah, yeah. The <laughs> literally mm-hmm. <laughs> and i um it's it's ridiculous and off-putting but i i feel like the that kind of childlike characteristic and the fact that these they're, they're essentially doing this just to have fun it's partly the money but a lot of it's just to have fun is mm-hmm. is also interesting and unique yeah when we first meet bonnie parker she's in sort of repose and just dying of boredom right yeah <laughs> um, like, you would think that she is physically dying from boredom um yeah. and just the excitement of meeting clyde and and you know like yeah i this is I don't think at any point we see them super flush with cash, right? This seems to be more about the thrill than anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's no accident that this movie resonated with people at the time that it came out, because you got to think this is like Vietnam was really ramping up at this point. This is a year before the Tet Offensive, which is like where like the the draft was kicking into like high gear. But like Vietnam was very much in the forefront of people's brains. Um, there was a lot of uh, frustration and disillusion with like the American government and authorities figures, um, you know, I, like, so I can see why a film like this would would excite people a little bit, because here you have these two characters that are very anti-establishment uh, and rebellious and rambunctious, and uh, you probably would have wanted to root for them a bit. What did you make of uh, of the ending? So, like the sudden end. So like I like again. This is one of my favorite tropes of the era. It frustrates a lot of people. Like the first time they encounter a film like of this era and and have that because we're so used to that denouement. You know that that happens where you can kind of have some time to reflect while the the uh, film is still going before the credits roll, where you can kind of process things. And this doesn't give you that time whatsoever it is very much you know uh bang 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 the end (laughs) so what did you guys make of that have you ever seen a that uh like a film of this era or like have you ever encountered something like this before i definitely have i'm trying to think of what specific movies were that ended like this personally i loved it um oh the the green knight is kind of similar right Mm, it cuts off right as the yeah Axe is coming down, uh, but I, I loved it because so much of the film is you're you're go, you're swinging between uh, I guess kind of like frustration at all the infighting in this group, uh, the thrill of their heists, and the kind of anxiety of the moments when they are just kind of having fun and you know enjoying themselves and being in in love. But it seems like you know there's this other shoe always waiting to drop. And it's just one wild joyride, essentially. And then you crash at the end. And it, I don't know, it, it makes the viewer experience kind of mirror their experience a little bit. And I like when movies do that. Do you have any, like, uh, either modern examples or, like, had you encountered um, a similar sort of, like, ending, like, for, uh, you know, film of this time period or outside before? Or is this, like, the, the first you've seen something like this? I would say that, and I don't know if this is a good comparison or not, but No Country for Old Men sort of felt like it just sort of cut 
And even though a lot of what had happened had already been resolved, I think that to a certain extent, I didn't really expect it to just cut after Tommy Lee Jones's <laughs> um, ending monologue. And so I think that it's it's definitely something I'm not opposed to. I think it's very good when it's strategic and intentional about how you want to feel like that's how you want your audience to feel going out of the film. And so to have it be this, you know, massive shootout at the end, surprise attack. Um, no, I think it was very effective. I think it was very well done. And it was just an interesting way to frame it too uh, for being inside the vehicle when they're walking up to, uh, how everybody is uh, framed through the windows that you see right before it cuts yeah definitely like intent there is to leave a lasting impression you don't want to talk about fade to black like mm -hmm. oof, um you know like this is definitely one where uh you know there the intent is to kind of shock you and then piss off out of the theater now like with you like <laughs> go reconcile that out in the real world because you're not going to do it here in the in the movie theater we're not going to give you that time and i kind of love that um reservoir dog seems to have ate this a little bit like that movie doesn't even resolve like it cuts to black and like you hear the ending of that movie like in the credits like which is mm. brilliant so like you don't even get the satisfaction of seeing the final shootout it's literally um steve buscemi like crashes out through the door the credits start rolling and you hear the gunfire and like you, you don't even get what we get here which mm -hmm. um uh, i didn't realize it was a nod until like having seen it and i'm like i think that's probably something he was aping or certainly wanted to go a similar route so um yeah i, I kind of love that um what did you all make of sort of the uh it was very against the typecasting for warren Beatty, like with like the type of um, like he, you know, it's obviously charming, but like in particular, you can read it as impotence or whatever. But like <laughs> the 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 dynamics of like sexuality and and romance were not at all what I expected in this movie. I didn't know anything about that, and I think it was one of the most interesting parts. But what did you guys think of that? Like and and like how the dynamic between Bonnie and Clyde, specifically as romantic partners. It was unexpected for me too, especially since there is like so much innuendo in the first like 10 minutes yeah, of the film. I know. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> A lot of foreplay. Yep. Yeah, literally showing off his pistol. Uh, <laughs> but I I was like doing some thinking and reading about it uh, after I watched it. And it does seem to me like it emphasizes the fact that. Bonnie obviously cares for Clyde, but for her, the, like the the thrill and excitement is is just what they're able to do together with these heists. And mm -hmm. she's obviously like wanting more and longing for more. And anytime he's like is trying to provide that for her, but it does subvert expectations because I know at least the kind of mythos of Bonnie and Clyde is usually hypersexualized, and yes. taking that element away kind of forces the audience to reckon with the fact that, you know, these aren't just two kids, like, you know, in love and driven by hormones. This is a more, I guess, frightening need just to rob and kill and 
fly in the face of the law. And I feel like that makes it, if anything, more like radical and unsettling. Awesome. Great points. Will, um, what, what did you, uh, what did you think of it? Did it surprise you that there was like a lack of like, you know, physical or traditional romance um, in the film? And if so, like, what'd you, what'd you think? But I'll, I've, I sort of read it as a lot of talk and not a lot of it, uh, not being able to like, basically perform as much as you wanted to advertise that you could like you thought you were a big hot shot and you you know you you talked a good game but then when it came down to it the substance like the style might have been there but the substance beneath wasn't really there and so the like he was egged on to sort of prove that he could do what he said he could do <laughs> and you know when it when it got more involved in something he was used to in terms of like robbing like a bank which he was used to just holding up grocery stores which seemed very easy and he had gotten used to doing that but when it came to actually robbing a bank and getting away with that or figuring out all the I guess all the the pieces about what he was getting into that he was in over his head and then it's the same thing too sort of like with the sexuality that he tries to to convey and then it's like well when they start going at it, then suddenly he's not interested or he's not able to or he is feeling out of his element and isn't sure how well he's going to perform, I guess, up until like it's inferred at the very end that they do. But yeah, it was it was interesting because, yeah, that first few minutes with them together is very much every sort of phallic reference, I feel like, you know, between the Coke bottles and... <laughs> <laughs> and just the, the fact the that pistol. she's naked when she meets him <laughs> yeah she's topless and perfectly fine just hanging out the window you know chatting to him and um just yeah sure you're about to steal by you know my folks car but it's cool you know you seem like a nice guy let's chat for a little bit you're interesting i've been bored stiff in my room all the time you know and uh so yeah oh and also like the um the cigar too that was interesting just the his smoking or the matchstick that was in his mouth there's the one scene where she tries to you know use the cigar too and then seems to not enjoy the taste of it but she enjoyed holding the gun for when they were posing for photographs so that was pretty cool too interesting sort of comparison but yeah i think it was a lot of uh a lot of talk and not a lot to back up what they said they could do so interesting yeah i um definitely was quite surprised by the lack of traditional like romance uh but i think it made it all the more touching like uh in in the fucked up way i guess like that she's able to still have some of her needs met with like the the friendship and obviously like the companionship of robbing the banks and being in the gang together um it does add a little bit of a tragic lens to her character a bit like when you see her sort of sort of so frustration and or frustrated and like unfulfilled in some of those scenes um yeah it was just it was really unexpected i thought this was going to be more similar to um a movie that i think is a brilliant companion piece to this a uh, little little bit of a hard watch like guess particularly um the first 20 30 minutes while you're acclimating to it but natural born killers is very bonnie and clyde-esque in terms of how they meet and how that whole thing un unfolds um it you know it's more of a critique on like uh the um like uh what, what sort i'm looking for like news and and uh like media portrayals and how like media can control the narrative but they're very sexual so that's what i was expecting was to to have them 
you know, I don't know, like hot and heavy kissing, making out, like, you know, like it's one big long honeymoon. So I was quite surprised that it, it wasn't that at all. Um, but I thought it was all the better for it. Um, what, why do we think, uh, I don't have a, an answer in mind for this, by the way, this is really just an open-ended question. Why do we think at the end he is able to perform, right? Why, why are they able to consummate their, is that the, is that the director just simply like giving the audience a little bit of what they want? Like, like, or is there something else at play there? How did you guys Obviously he's just really into her death poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's given him something that he wants and, and you know it, it arouses them i mean maybe like i think that's a, i don't know if you're kidding or being serious but i think that's I, a I was i was joking to me it felt like uh shoe like shoehorn plot point if anything it's just like they were trying to add legitimacy to the relationship by having them consummate it uh something along those lines i felt like one of the only things that was probably kind of an old hollywood forced event maybe he finally felt validated maybe he just always had a a, a doubt about how good he was able to hold on to everything and by the end he thought that they were actually going to be okay so maybe he felt comfortable and validated after all that that's kind of how i i sort of read that but again it could just be the well we're about to wrap everything up and they're not going to make it. So <laughs> we'll give him a little bit, you know, a little Let's bit of get time them together. laid once just, so you know, yeah. Just, just so he fun. can say he did it once in his life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did also have a near death experience together right before that. So maybe, you know, it kind of solidified true. any like lingering trust issues or, or over, overcame them. I should say. I, I did a little bit of research um, and take this to the grain of salt because it's this comes from the internet which we all know is the most reliable place um to, to get your information but i did read that uh the real um clyde was sexually assaulted by mm -hmm. uh, another male prisoner who he eventually killed um in 1931 yeah. just before he was released so um i thought it was maybe because this was like technically still within like the Hayes code, although it wasn't really being enforced. I think it ended a year later. Um, so I don't know if they just thought they couldn't get away with that angle or didn't want to put that angle. I mean, he makes an offhand comment, um, you know, early in the film of like, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't like boys. Right. Which like, mm -hmm. um, I thought like interesting that, you know, they have him say that, but don't go into that part of, um, cause I think it would have added a, a, dimension but maybe that they weren't quite ready for that yet and and new hollywood to explore you know um sexual assault of a um of a male and in, in cinema it is explored in um a couple of years and you know some uh, another one of my favorite movies midnight cowboy but um mm. but yeah they stopped short a little bit which was uh disappointing i mean not really disappointing but i just like when i read it i was like oh man that would have added a really interesting dimension to his his character and and that sort of dynamic and um it does seem like a little bit of a nod to that sure maybe that where they're like well we can have him make this comment but like you know stop short of like actually exploring it or maybe audiences would have been savvy enough to know if like hey he's come out of prison maybe something happened um mm -hmm. I, i'm not really sure well uh let's have a little chat about heist tropes since this movie is in a lot of ways a heist film um there's many heists it's more like a heist uh heist-a-thon i guess like um uh, <laughs> than, than a heist uh in the film but um what are your some of your favorite we'll go one at a time may i'll start with you so some of your favorite heist tropes and what do you think is is overdone like what, what should we stick a fork in 
Um, so my answer is actually the same for both. I, oh, really? It's super overdone, but I'm also very fond of it. And okay. I love I love when it's included in a heist film, but it's done in like a slightly different way, uh, which I would say Bonnie and Clyde did. Uh, it's, it's like the whole, okay, we got to get a crew. Like, (laughs) (laughs) whenever it's planning the heist, like goes out and, you know, finds all their old connections and buddies and specialists to get the whole crew together. Love that done to death, but I love it. And I like this because it was more like, they were just, they wanted to get their names out there. They were telling everyone and everyone like, Hey, I'm uh, Bonnie, I'm Bonnie Parker. I'm Clyde Barrow, like with the Barrow gang uh and it you know that's attractive to people like cw moss and his and his, and his brother and that's how they get the crew together um and I, I i like that it was more just kind of random in this movie like whoever happened to be working on their car they're like hey you seem useful but <laughs> <laughs> it's clear that he is not cut out to be a getaway driver <laughs> So, yeah, no, I appreciated that it wasn't the stereotype. I, I guess that probably wasn't even a standard trope at this point, but it was uh, a funny way of putting a crew together. And the, relu- the reluctant Blanche. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, Blanche was reluctant indeed. I just have to say, it's not an answer to your question, but talking about Blanche, I'm amazed that Blanche didn't get shot earlier in the film. Like, <laughs> when she's running around flailing everywhere. I'm thinking, dude, those cops are aiming at everybody. There is no way you were not getting hit by somebody. And then she made it through like almost the entire film and then still made it out alive at the end. I mean, inferably, right? Unless, you know, but that's that to me was like, I think that was the most surprising part for me about that. But anyway, what, what was she armed with? Was that like a metal spatula? <laughs> spade, I think it's a gardening spade is what it was, but yeah. Yeah, so. I think she did make it out I, I, like I'll fact check myself uh, on the backside of the edit but um, apparently uh, the real Blanche Barrow saw the film and took issue with like reducing her to a screaming idiot like she didn't even like her <laughs> character in the movie because <laughs> you gotta think this is only 30 years like after the events of the film right. so like yeah. some of these people were still alive um yeah. Oh man, I would have been pissed. <laughs> yeah, she took big like, issue. Really? Yeah. She may have even taken legal action. I got to look that up. Um, it's also we'll I'll throw something in here, supplemental. But I know she definitely took issue with it. Dang man. Well, anyway, back to your your earlier question about tropes. I feel like, and sort of a little bit off of what you said, May, when they're putting a team together, there's always like that one guy on the team that fucks something up that is like a loose cannon but they for some reason still have him there and mm-hmm. i'm saying him because it is nine times i don't think it's ever been a woman it has always been a dude who has like a short temper or an itchy trigger finger or is not on the same page as anybody else on the entire crew and yet somehow he is looped in because he has some sort of skill set that they're like we need this guy and you're like no you don't you don't really need he does not need to come along <laughs> But he's usually, whoever this character is, is usually, if they are not the impetus for why things, you know, start to fall apart, they will at some point not be helping the situation. And so I feel like that is definitely the case in a lot of heist movies. Not all of them, but just several of them. And I'm going to pull back up Ambulance, uh, the Michael Bay movie I talked about, is definitely an example of that. There's definitely a guy who is just an absolute a-hole. And you're like, I just can't, I'm, I'm waiting for you to get shot by somebody or get left. So 
that was that that comes to mind in terms of like something that i like though with the sort of the heisty tropes is there's always something that they don't anticipate that they have to figure out on the spot how they're going to get around it in order to still pull off the heist and i like yeah. watching characters that are smart that are interesting that are not you know complete murderous criminals that have to then figure out how they're going to get out of whatever the situation is that they're in maybe still pull off the heist but at least you know get past the immediate danger and so i like that when there's like a little curveball that they have to figure out on the spot and actually do something intelligent to to get it done so uh so the inside man who's a rat i feel like is done to death like i could go the rest of my life without seeing that i think it's just like we all expect it when there's like a crew that there's going to be maybe an inside like person who's working against them in some way shape or form whether it's because they're angry at not getting their fair share or there's a personal reason whatever it is i feel like i'm always on the lookout for that um going back to reservoir dogs i think they did something really interesting with how that unfolds in that particular film with who the person is and what state they're in um you know after the heist but yeah just i, I think it's done to death and like let's let's move on let's do something else um what I like about heist films, like one of my favorite sort of like um, part of like that narrative structure is the planning phase. I think you get mm. a lot of really good character development often during the planning phase because you see people's strengths or opportunities for like how adept they are at a criminal. And usually you get a lot of like character conversation and talk there like um, but that that can be really, really interesting. So um, I love like, you know, especially when they got like the little cork board and all the little things pinned up and you know get a little bit of banter <laughs> going back and forth on shit good times so awesome i could see why that would be a negative to somebody too it is like very much a hollywood thing to have a fucking cork board <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, with like pins and like you know, routes and like shit on there but i don't care i love it gotta suspect anybody going into hobby lobby man they're getting all those craft supplies they're planning <laughs> yeah. something oh gosh yeah <laughs> that or they're hunting a serial killer oh yeah oh, <laughs> also <right>. a detective <laughs> trope <laughs> we're doing a podcast on uh <laughs> so kind of bring the episode to a close uh first of all is there anything anybody else wants to add about bonnie and clyde i'll uh i'll let you guys if there's anything last minute you want to talk about i suppose um before we transition to a little game but i have a silly question were they that good looking <laughs> <laughs> um i don't think so like i think um like gene hackman's character like the brother was supposedly like better looking than clyde and like the photos that i saw like i was like oh okay like not bad but yeah i'm looking at the wikipedia article now they're fine. fine they're fine yeah <laughs> fine. that's right yeah they're they're not hideous or anything like you know but like you know that's it yeah so yeah i guess like would you swipe right or left like that's the question <laughs> <laughs> well the photos are black and white so and probably <laughs> from not if, the best distance. if a black and white photo showed up on my tinder i'd be very confused <laughs> I, I, i'd be more inclined to uh nice that might be the it's best like, way to stand out on tinder you'd be like wait a minute actually 100 hmm. percent I'm digging this oh image of the like the real life image of Bonnie with the gun on this on the front end of the car. Mm -hmm. 
have to pop some of these in to, to the edit did you mm-hmm. see uh you can actually if uh, i think it's on the nevada california border like the actual car is like there with like there's like a hundred and something bullet holes in it um it's on display it's pretty amazing some of the photos it's like it's wild yeah i do have one question for you guys um if you had to choose you don't have to necessarily choose one but your favorite heist movie from all of the ones that you have seen yeah uh heat easy for me mm, i have some recency yeah. bias having just rewatched it but that it's so far and above like anything that i've ever seen it's easy i uh, again sometimes i like movies just for vibes i i do like baby driver even though like i don't think the heists mm. are that impressive but like as a heist film i like it also you get to see kevin kevin spacey like shot in the chest it's great <laughs> <laughs> may's like check yep. <laughs> how about you well, i would have to say i really enjoy lock stock and two smoking barrels the guy richie ice movie yeah that for me was entertaining because it's got a bunch of guys who are they're dark characters but i just really want to see how it's going to turn out i'm just it's all twisty and there's different people involved and you're not really sure who's maybe going to off who and how it's going to turn out and yeah there's there's something about that sort of gangster heisty film that really appeals to me that i felt like was good in that was kind of the same way in snatch and then when Guy Ritchie came out with The Gentleman more recently, I, I felt that same kind of vibe again. So, yeah. So let me ask you um, that, to go further down the rabbit hole, put you on the spot, uh, which mm-hmm. is better, Snatch or Lockstock? There is one definitive answer here. So I expect you to answer correctly. Well, I'll probably get it wrong, but I'm, I'd have to say it's Lockstock and Two Smoking Birds. That You are correct. Yeah, that is the that is the correct answer. Um, yeah. Snatch is very good, but people are it's like no lock stock yeah. have the hot to yeah take of like oh yeah snatch is like the i'm like no 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 no, no, no there's not. no way yeah snatch or i was gonna Good say yeah, lock stock is the og yeah <laughs> you passed the yeah, test yeah. i we were, i was gonna uh put a posting on the internet for a podcast that was position if you said snatch no. nice <laughs> oh okay <laughs> no i'm just kidding i'm kidding gotta tread lightly around chris <laughs> he's joking but he's not joking <laughs> unless yeah uh amazing well to close out uh this week's episode we are going to um do another lightning list so i guess it's not really technically a game so much as as a fun activity where we are going to build the top six definitive like this is the the list right like everything else uh should just be eradicated from the internet after this but this is the top six definitive heist films brought to you by screen quest so two nominees a piece and then we'll have to order them out so um and it's okay if you haven't seen a film like no worries like um well uh you, you can just use what you need, know from pop culture and that, that's how you make a good list right you don't watch the movie on it and you put it somewhere really <laughs> low <laughs> uh may what do you have i have a controversial pick because i guess this is kind of a reverse heist but Fine. i was going to say inception oh boy Ooh. i'm making that one uh no no i think that's a good pick i think i think that is um it's an interesting pick and that i would say counts for sure okay good and then i already said it but baby driver well you can do one or two picks um if you want to do both of yours like if you know what both of them are you can absolutely go go for it part of me wants to just throw something out there to be ridiculous but at the same time part of me is like i i've already mentioned too that i really enjoy 
Um, I'd have to go with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, but the other one, though, I mean, Ocean's Eleven is is sort of classic. I mean, whether we're talking, I haven't actually seen the original one with the Rat Pack the whole way through, so I can't speak to that. But I really enjoyed the remake of it, and I feel like that sort of. I mean, besides the fact that it's been carried on in about four different sequels, um, has also been I, probably what kickstarted a few other heist movies to come out after it. So I, I might be a little vanilla in that I've already mentioned them too, but I've I'm gonna have to go with those two: Ocean's Eleven and Lock, uh, Lockstock. Solid choices. Yeah, I think very good choices. All right, well, I'm gonna give my two my two picks here for the uh, the heist film. So uh heat i've already said um definitely just amazing um and my second pick is actually a stanley kubrick film called the killing from 1956 yes 1956 uh it stars sterling hayden and had a tremendous influence on reservoir dogs because it is told Mm -hmm. out of sequence it has a group of uh misfits uh who put together a robbery of a horse track and it is incredibly ahead of its time. It's amazing. Um, Really, really exciting, tight, and uh, has just, I think one of the more more interesting structures of like traditional, this would have been traditional Hollywood era. So I think it gets big points for that. So that's my pick. Good choices. (laughs) Now we have the fun task of ranking all these. (laughs) I know you're going to put inception at the bottom. Let me let me go back through and think. <laughs> like and like I, I'm also taking into cult, like cultural relevance uh too. So as much as I might want to put Inception at the bottom, mm-hmm. let's see. We have Lockstock, Inception, Heat, The Killing, um Baby Driver, Ocean's Eleven, and Baby Driver. I'm actually gonna put Baby Driver below Inception. As much as I like mm-hmm. love that movie more than Inception, I think Inception has more <laughs> cultural relevance. So yeah. Although I will say Baby Driver, extremely accurate depiction of what driving in Atlanta is like. Ah, (laughs) Complete with the music and everything. I was going to say, if only it was like a music video, that would make it even better. Um. All right, so I'll I'll give you my rankings, and then we could try to like like suss this out. So I think I'm going to do Baby Driver, or sorry, um, yeah, Baby Driver. The Killing, mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is okay. That makes sense. Uh, Lockstock, Inception, and Heat, and it's just again. Ooh. I personally don't like you guys. Know I hate Inception. Yeah, mm-hmm. but <laughs> the cultural relevance of that movie is pretty astounding, and like originality as far as like what the concept of that movie. I feel like I would put it mm-hmm. second place actually. So that's my that's my ranking. Nice. I unfortunately have not seen most of the films you two recommended. My only uh, criticism is I think Ocean's Eleven should be higher on that list. Ah. Fair. Maybe knock it up one point past Lockstock. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'd have to say Lockstock is better than Ocean's Eleven. So I agree. So what? What would it? So would we put Ocean's Eleven higher than? especially for considering like cultural impact yeah Mm, that is true yeah 
Sorry, Lockstock. Sorry, Britain. We'll, we'll get you guys can tweak it too, like because we've come to consensus. So, like, um, my list is like the, I just wanted to give you mine. Like, you can each do your mm -hmm. own, and then like we can kind of like get a consensus there and like figure it out. I think it's pretty well, close. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty on par with what you've got. So it's really nitpicking at that point. <laughs> I agree with yours, Chris, but I would put Ocean's Eleven in the number three spot and bump okay. down them. Yeah. Is it really going to be that easy? <laughs> it's going to be that easy. Wow. All right. I guess um, it, this We're is not a match fighting. made in heaven. Yeah. For, for, for podcast co-host. Amazing. All right. Well, I'll, uh, you know, list those out in a cool way on the, the, the video version to give you guys incentives to, to come check that out. But there you go. Have it. That's the definitive list of heist movies, like the top six of all time. According to Screen Quest, which is the only source <laughs> you need for all of your movie ranking needs. <laughs> that is uh, in perpetuity. Uh, there can be no more heist films of quality. It's true. It's just impossible. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. Does that mean that he actually gets like a Sethi award? Is that, are we, are we still doing that? <laughs> I mean, we could give it like a lifetime achievement. Yeah. Lifetime Sethi award. Lifetime for, Sethi. Like, for the greatest uh, heist film. Yeah, why not? Why not? We should I let like uh, De Niro and Pacino know. Oh gosh, <laughs> yeah. Michael Mann, he's doing the uh, the uh, book tour right now for Heat Two, like uh, which is a prequel sequel novel that he hopes yep. to turn into a film. So uh, he's really active on Twitter. I'll just I'll here you go. Here's Freedom. your, your <laughs> here's your NFT of this. Do it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Cool. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the show and the drawing of another main quest. Uh, I haven't like finished editing the episode, so I'm not sure if it'll end up in case it hasn't ended up there. We have stipulated that May is going to get a pick this time because we have seesaw between Will and I for several, several episodes. So regardless of what I draw, it is going to be a May pick that we land on. Um, mm -hmm. I will try to make it apparent that I'm shuffling in, no matter how many times it takes. So here we go. We'll uh, we'll make it happen. I'm going to will this to just be it first time so I don't have to like cut around this or do anything fancy. <laughs> so nice. All right. May the odds be in our favor. <laughs> yeah. All right. The first attempt is a deja vu. So let me look and see if this is a May pick. I think it is based on the number. And I was right. Nailed it. Uh, didn't even have to do it again. So Noise. this is uh, a deja vu. Uh, here's our description of that category. because It's been a while. Imitation is the best kind of flattery. Choose a film that pays homage to another film or genre and we decide whether that homage is successful. The selection is Dirty Pretty Things, Ooh. which is a film I've not seen. So this is going to be yet another opportunity to check another off the list and experience something new, which is really what I love about this podcast. So give us a little um, teaser for what Dirty Pretty Things is. Yeah. So the genre that it like kind of fits into and that I want us like thinking about the film through is like mystery slash thriller. Um, it does focus on two immigrants living in, I believe, London. Um, mm -hmm. And it does like in a, 
and does give a lot of insight into like the unique difficulties they're facing in the city as immigrants, but there's also this like mystery surrounding this hotel that uh, both of them are connected to and uh, the uh, scary things that might be going on there. Nice. Sounds very intriguing. I cannot wait to, uh, to check it out. Um, a little like revisiting of our last stage of it, which is Knives Out. We're like a month out from that movie or so, right? Like or a couple of months out and there's like no marketing. Like I've seen one still. Hmm. Yeah. What is up with I... that? So they did reveal like who's in it, but. Yeah. But like, where's the trailer? Like, like, <sighs> come on, man. You spent a lot of money to get this IP that, you know, is like yeah. huge. I just, I, I really selfishly, I just want to know a bit more about it because I'm, I'm excited. So. Um, but also Netflix is kind of bad about marketing their shit. Sometimes like something will be like a week out and I'm like, I didn't even know this existed before now. Glad I only have to wait a week, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not seeing like an official release date. I know it's supposed to be at some point this year, but there's only four months left to the year. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Amazing. All right. Well, more to come on that because I'm sure we'll talk about that when it comes out. But um, Glass Onion, I believe it's called, right? I think that's knives out glass onion it's glass onion and knives out mystery or something like yeah. that yeah fantastic well that brings us to the end of this week's episode thank you so much for uh you know all the the likes the shares the subscribes the views we really do appreciate it engage with us on social media at screen quest pod recommend the show to a friend please 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 we would love you forever if you do that and until next week we love you bye bye Bye, guys.